Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Hark. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Steve Greenfield, CEO and founder of Automotive Ventures. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you, uh, fellow Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's awesome, though. You you kind of have quite an impressive background. You've been involved in a bunch of things. But maybe before we kind of dive into that stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and kind of cover your background and kind of where you grew up. Yeah, yeah. So good. So yeah, Kevin, um, like you, I'm from Canada originally and find myself now in the the U.S. I uh, I moved down here about 16 years ago. Okay. Um, Started um, just by chance working for an American company that had a satellite division up in Canada. Um, It was automotive. And and that's how I really started down the automotive path, but was selling software to car dealers. And if you think back to 1999, at that time, I mean, car dealers in general, to generalize for a second, aren't the more sort of like technology savvy bunch to begin with. Back in 99, most of them didn't have a computer, never mind had any excuse to get on the internet. So when we were trying to figure out how to get dealers to buy cars online, um, many times we had to go out and buy a computer for them and get them hooked up to the internet just to get them over that hurdle. That's, That's fascinating. So maybe let's back up a little bit. What did you take in kind of university then? Yeah, so if you really want to go back, I mean, I came out of um, high school in Toronto, okay. um, pretty pretty fixated on not going to university. Okay, why was that? Um, just at the time, I felt like I didn't really want to take on that burden. Gotcha. So I actually um, went through a community college. At the time in Canada, they were foreseeing a shortage of commercial pilots. And I uh, went through an accelerated program to uh, get my pilot license. Really? And uh, it wasn't until we actually started flying a year later after a year of academics that I realized that I had motion sickness, like horrible motion sickness. So I stuck with it for about half a year, got my private license, and ended up, interestingly enough, starting a comic book store in downtown Toronto. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So how long did you do the comic books? So two and a half years, and, okay. and we successfully sold that for okay. a very small sum. And at that time, the buddy that I had from high school, who was my partner in that sure. endeavor, um, both of us decided it was time to go back to school. So I actually went back to school gotcha. in um, exercise physiology okay. um, in, in Toronto and did my undergrad. Um, and I, I didn't go back till I was 24, so I didn't come out till I was 28. Got you. Okay. So... Fast forward a bit, you're back down in Atlanta, you're working for a corporation. Kind of walk me through kind of what you were doing and then why did you decide to kind of move on from that? Yeah, yeah. So so I spent 10 years with the same company, Automotive gotcha. Related. Okay. It, it was the largest wholesale auction company in the world selling cars wow. to car dealers. Okay. Um, and then had the chance in um, early 2010 to move over to the sister company, Autotrader.com, gotcha. where for two years I oversaw acquisitions. Okay. And then two years I ran the product group. So interestingly, you know, I saw a lot of uh, deal flow with entrepreneurs for the first two years trying to sell their businesses to AutoTrader. And then had two years where I had a group of 65 folks that were responsible for everything from understanding market needs to translating those to what products we would deliver to actually getting the things built and delivered into the market. Interesting. Okay. So what made you decide to leave and kind of found your own company? Yeah, so at some point, I guess as you get older, you start to um, hopefully introspect 
and crave more meaning in life. And, <laughs> All right, that's and, an and, interesting and, way you know, to put it. And, sure. and, and in the corporate world, you know, as you move through the ranks, um, they have HR people whose specific role is to make sure that the incentives are aligned so you never even contemplate leaving. So um, I found myself sort of like in my early 40s when I sort of sat there and said, you know, am I going to spend the next 10, 15, 20 years? Be paid very well and comped well. Sure. But um, I, I was going, I was missing something in terms of craving more meaning out of the work. Gotcha. Um, and I think the, the only way to fulfill that void would have been to leave and try to start my, something myself. I mean, I always thought that my fallback plan, I, I could always go back and get a corporate job. But sure. the truth was I, I needed at that point to test myself to see if I could actually build something that people would buy and hopefully potentially exit. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. So what did you end up founding? Yeah. So so at the time I left Auto Trader, I, I realized that I had about 15 years worth of automotive-related experience. Gotcha. What I didn't know was what solution I was going to try to build and what problem I was going to try to solve. Okay. So I, I literally left um, knowing that I knew the industry well and spent the first couple of months in my spare bedroom with a paper notebook, jotting down ideas, writing up concepts, etc. And then just, just frankly, um, you know, constantly reprioritizing which of the ideas we should go after. Okay. And so what did you kind of eventually decide on and what was the deciding factor? You're like, okay, I'm going to go do this. Yeah. So good. So I was doing um, sort of customary discovery on three ideas gotcha. over the course of that summer. So this okay. is now three or four months after I'd left Auto Trader, okay. And it wasn't until I was fl literally flying back on a flight um, from Denver, uh, back to Atlanta after visiting with some dealers out there that I um, had somewhat of uh, epiphany, I suppose, when I said, you know, I could go after one of these smaller ideas, okay. but if I don't go after the biggest idea, then I will always regret not coming back to it. And I also, you know, had seen far too many cases where an entrepreneur gets consumed with whatever idea they're pursuing sure. and never really has the luxury of coming back to an idea and may live with that regret. So given that, I sort of said, of the three, we're going to go um, flat out after the biggest idea, okay. uh, which frankly was try is trying to solve the biggest unmet need in the automotive space, and, um, and hell be damned to the other two ideas. We can always circle back and come back to them. Sure. So, so this is Carlingo that you started, correct? C correct. So what is it exactly and kind of obviously you just covered why you decided to found it because it was a, a big idea but what exactly is it sure sure so if you look at sort of like the consumer shopping process for a car typically a consumer's in the market for about three months on average okay. they, they spend probably you know 15 to 18 hours total during that time frame invested in shopping for cross shopping etc sure. pricing um, and that that's probably across 12 different websites so, so the evolution over the last 15, 20 years of the internet, you know, there are all kinds of different sites that you can go to to get pretty good information sure. during the shopping process, one of which I worked for. Um, what, what happens inevitably is the consumer, though, then ends up face-to-face -face with a dealer, and they are at a huge information disadvantage. And the process is very painful. They, they end up there on a Saturday morning. They sit in, across from the dealer for four hours. And at the end of it, you always walk away you know, with a car that you love, but, sure. but knowing that you've left something on the table. Sure. So the idea is, you know, is there a way to manifest all of the decisions that may take place typically in the dealership face-to-face -face ahead of time, right, sure. um, in a digital experience where a consumer can 
kind of check the boxes. So when they actually end up going to pick up the vehicle, all those decisions are made and um, they can have a short, delightful experience while they're in the right. showroom. I, I think that's awesome. And I, it's interesting because I've kind of been searching for a, like something like this when I was buying a car a number of years ago and it didn't exist. And I think it makes a lot of sense, right? Because like you said, it's most people don't really like actually buying the car that they want to drive. So I, I think you're solving a real need. So you you kind of, you're, you're still doing it obviously, but you, you took, you kind of founded another company as well. So do you want to kind of talk about how you, you moved to Automotive Ventures then? Sure. So Automotive Ventures was the kind of umbrella holding company gotcha. that I created literally the week after I left Auto Trader um, because I wasn't sure which, which idea we were going to pursue. Sure. Um, Carlingo fits under Automotive Ventures. Gotcha. Um, is a wholly owned LLC underneath it. Um, and, and we basically raised a million and a half bucks against that idea wow. from people that I knew in the industry and such. Okay. Um, and staffed up to 11 people and spent the next six months um, spending all of our energy trying to figure out if we could drive consumer conversion through our experience, i.e. give them enough value with these upfront tools that they would surrender basically their email address so we could then nurture that and eventually gotcha. monetize with car dealers. Gotcha. Um, the, the, the pivot that we had, if you want to call it that, sure. was after about six months of burning now investors' money, sure. um, a, a lot of which was really just to generate the consumer awareness and traffic to A-B test these different experiences to try to drive conversion, um, I, it became very apparent to me that we were going to need more money to continue to A-B test this thing into a state where we were driving enough value to the car dealers that they would pay for it. Gotcha. So we, midsummer last year, so that this would have been 2015, we hit the pause button, button okay. on that idea. Okay. Um, we kind of right-sized the business, if you want to call layoffs with a euphemistic term, <laughs> and then um, pivoted into this other idea. So we still okay. got car lingo is hydrated with information as you know 2016s and 2017 model years come in. Sure. To the outside world, it still exists, but we haven't spent any more development dollars against it. Got you. What we did at that point was said, okay, we actually, ironically enough, um, we, we defaulted to the second idea that I had the year prior. Got you. And we're building software, which is a B2B play now. So it will not necessitate building a consumer audience. Got you. Uh, with the fickleness of the consumer and the cost of that. Sure. Um, we're focused on building tools for dealers they'll pay for on a monthly subscription basis to help them with new car inventory management. Okay, so for for the car dealer out there, like what exactly does does that do for them? Sure, sure. So the value proposition is something like this at a high level. So okay. the average um, car dealer, and there are about 18,000 of them in the U.S., oh, wow. has on average about 130 cars on their lot. Okay. Right? H how those cars arrive on their lot is some combination of the OEM the, sorry, the manufacturer, the vehicle manufacturer, the OEM, okay. pushing inventory that they're building in the factory anyway. Okay. But the flip side is, in many cases, the dealer has the opportunity to configure whichever car that they want, okay. which they order, gets built to the factory, and shipped to them. Okay. What the dealers don't have, believe it or not, is a tool that simply provides them supply-demand data Really? In their local market wow. to say, hey, you know, specific configurations of cars, color, convertible, wheels, what, what have you, sure. are selling really well in your market. And by the way, you've never ordered them before. 
So, so what we're doing is just build, building sort of a supply chain optimization software tool, if you want to call it Got that, you. which simply looks at supply demand of cars that are selling in any given region, and then helping a dealer make better decisions about which cars to stock, which will give them higher higher turn rate. They'll, they'll turn the cars quicker sure. and yield them more profit per unit sold. Sure. What what appealed to me before we even connected with what you're doing is you're basically taking an industry that isn't known for being tech savvy, mm-hmm. like for lack of a better term, and you're basically using your prior knowledge and bringing technology into this industry. Right, correct. Right? And I, I think that's, that's awesome. And I think there's a lot of people that are in similar kind of situations to where you were or currently are that you know, have all this expertise and maybe like decades of experience in this thing. And they're thinking like, well, could I build software to solve a real problem in this industry? Because I don't want to work at a corporate job for another few decades. Right. 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 And so I, I think you have like kind of an inspiring story there around that. Yeah. And and so so where where are you guys with that product now? Is it out to, in the market? Yes. Yeah, so, so we decided to focus on on only one manufacturer because yeah. you have to become sort of a, an expert at car ordering and configuration around one brand. So we've done that for one small brand, which is BMW to start with, okay. which is my favorite brand. It happens to be my favorite brand gotcha. as well. And um, we've kind of perfected the model now for one brand. Got we've got a, a working prototype in the hands of about 16 different car dealers, okay. and they're using it now and providing good real-time feedback okay. that we're then incorporating into the product. So I would say that, you know, typical, you know, startup land lingo, we're sort of like in product fit, so product market fit sort of category. Sure. We're pre-revenue, so we haven't bothered to try to charge revenue yet. I've got plenty of runway left in terms of the cash burn that I've got and the cash in the bank. So we, we don't feel any pressure to be monetizing yet. We're really perfecting it for a small segment of car dealers now until such time as we start getting feedback that, is overwhelmingly positive and compelling for them to pay us. And I think that in the next month or so, we will start testing um, their willingness to pay. Oh, and that at, fast. Yeah, well, we've been at this now for like six months. Sure, but right? that's still pretty fast in the startup space. It, it is, except for the fact that the, the, the year prior, when I was doing all this market Fair. testing, I designed the product. I had vali- yeah. validated the product with, with about 10 dealers back then. So sure. I, I wasn't starting from scratch, right? I got you. So, so the, the hope is, fingers crossed with our small team now, that a, a month from now we start monetizing, some revenue starts coming in. Got you. And then as, as soon as that happens, we've been collecting data for all the other brands. Okay. We, we start building out for brands beyond BMW. So my addressable market goes from 350 dealers to 18,000 dealers. Right, right. Okay, so you have... Do you have you've been in the industry, so you must have connections in uh, in a lot of these, or do you have to kind of hustle a bunch or a little combination of both? Well, a combination of bu- okay. bu- both. The good thing is, yes, I, I do have connections, personal connections with car de- some car dealers. Okay. Uh, but depending on the brand, not not a lot of connections, um, but enough that you know I can pick up the phone and either get feedback from a car dealer that's been in the business for a long time, right. and or try you know through a couple of degrees of separation connect with someone. Okay, so you're basically leveraging your network, previous, past, and kind of, I guess, future network if, you know, you're looking to make connections through a friend or who, whatnot. Right. I think that's super important because, you know, I'm trying to cover the importance of networking on this show too, right? So I kind of like to tell that networking story because I find sometimes some startups don't really network or people that want to do startups don't seem to network, right? And yep. so trying to promote the importance of that, right? So, okay, so you're... It looks like you'll probably be potentially cash flow positive by the end of the year. 
one would hope. Sure, but it, you're, I would say you're on good track to do that. Yes. Okay, so where do you see Carlingo fitting into this, or, or not at all, or you don't really know right now? Well, so it's a good point. I mean, I, I almost on a weekly basis get inbound interest around the model. Sure. Uh, because I, pe- people who start to understand the industry realize this is the biggest unmet need. That friction oh. between the consumer and the dealer isn't going away anytime soon. No. Right? There are some innovators out there trying to attack this space, but... Um, um, finding a solution that consumers love and engage with that's also commercializable with dealers is something that has to get done. Sure. So I would love to think that at some point after we get cash flow positive and this new idea gets off and moving that we can circle back. I know all too well probably that's not the case. For now we'll continue to keep Carlingo up and working. Sure. Um, partially because it's validation of all the hard work that the team did up For until sure. now. But um, you know, I, I would love at some point in the future whether it's in a year or five years to come back and try to address that problem because it is still the the biggest problem in the industry sure no i 100 percent agree with you i would love like i love the idea right i i hope i could just order my next car online and it just shows up in my driveway when i come home from work one day yep you know like so if i don't have to ever go to a dealership like last time i bought a car i think it took me a year before i actually pulled the trigger to buy a car because I'm not really a car guy. I drove a Tesla the other day, yep. and I would love to buy one, but that's a whole other, <laughs> we, we can ramble about that for another hour. But but you, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just, I think there's a lot of people, I think even like myself, that aren't really car people, yep. right? I, I would love to own like a 60s muscle car, but I don't really necessarily care too much about talking to somebody about it it's like i'll spend enough time online figuring out kind of what i want in my price range and then just send it to me yep right because i order lots online yep and i love just having it show up yep and i I think it's only going to get more and more especially as like millennials get older and they start buying cars if they start buying cars again apparently there's a study that some dealer are having a hard time selling newer cars to younger the younger generation but you know I, i think as they come on board, they're going to want to just order it and show up. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually, interestingly enough, writing a book on the future of automotive retailing, which I figure that will be a complement to whatever I'm doing in my day-to-day life okay. here. But um, one of the gaps I see is that no one takes sort of a definitive stand on what's actually going to happen five years hence in, gotcha. in the automotive retailing. And I think I'm writing this more for a, a dealer audience to caution them about the changes coming. Right. Okay. Um, and, and I think that you're you're right. I mean, I mean, there are a couple of um, innovative companies out there, most notably Carvana, sure. who, who is offering driveway delivery and then a, a 10-day, no questions asked sort of return policy. And I think their biggest challenge has been actually getting the consumer to believe that value prop because sure. the consumer can't really believe that hey, you're going to d- deliver a car to my driveway. I can effectively drive it for like seven days, and if I don't like it, call you up and you'll pick it up. It's almost too good to be true. Fair. But I think yeah. what will happen is, um, whether it's Carlingo, Carvana, or some combination, I think um, the bar is being raised. For sure. Expectations for folks like you in other verticals beyond automotive is rising. You know, this Uberization of totally. like this on-demand economy, you're going to expect such great sort of customer service from a car dealership that you're going to demand that you never have to go in there and sit through that four-hour grind. Totally. You're going to demand that I get an in-driveway 
um, dr um, a test drive experience sure. at, at my convenience. I want to push sure. a button, have a car show up, have a few hours to drive it in a low pressure environment, and then make my decision abstracted from the in showroom experience. Totally. And if a dealer is not prepared to live in that environment within the next few years, they're going to grow sort of increasingly irrelevant in the mind of the consumer. No, totally. And I, I think you bring up an interesting point because as the younger generation, if they've never bought a car before, and the only way they know to buy a car is through an app on their phone and it just shows up at their place, they've never had a bad experience with a car dealership. Right. So they don't even con comprehend the pain point, right? right? They just expect like, well, just give it to me now. Right. You know, Amazon sends it overnight, so send my car overnight. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. So, so I think that's, that's, that's really cool. But, um, you're also a member of Atlanta Tech Angels. Do you mm -hmm. want to maybe kind of quickly cover exactly what that is and, and how you're involved with that? Yeah, yeah. So uh, actually, I'm really excited to get more involved in the sort of like angel community sure. here in Atlanta. So Atlanta, Atlanta is a, a city about the same size as Toronto. You've got about six, sure. six million people here, um, a lot of affluence. In fact, some of the most affluent um, zip codes are within a couple of miles of where we're, where, where, where we're sitting right yeah, now. Yeah, I drove through, what is it, Midtown or? Well, West Pace's Ferries out yeah, there. Like you the, the governor's mansion and some crazy. Yeah, I drove yeah, by yeah, that yeah, area yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, holy. What yeah. place is that? <laughs> um, and, and a lot of this money is old money in Atlanta, but a lot of it has been made recently in real estate, of all okay. things. Okay. And then, you know, there's this financial tech corridor here where m many, many companies are innovating in financial technology. So you've got no shortage of affluence. But sure. my, my sense is here, you know, um, whether there's a chicken or an egg problem with really starting to prime the pump around innovation and startups gotcha. and entrepreneurship. Um, so yes, I, I recently joined Atlanta Tech Angels. It's a group of about 140 folks wow. uh, who meet monthly. Dur during those meetings, typically, we've pre-vetted um, entrepreneurs who come in and pitch, uh, usually about three pitches per, per evening when we sit through them. So you have 50 of you guys, and there's three people or three different companies that come in and pitch yeah, to those I, you guys. There's about 140 members total, but about 50 actually sit in the room gotcha. for those pitch nights. And then, you know, um, as a group, we, we sit and decide if we want to make the investment in these things. So, you know, my, my sense is whatever I can do to help energize entrepreneurship from, from the kind of presentation side, encourage more people to do what I did, leave the corporate world and or sure. students to start innovating and building and hiring folks. But we, we equally importantly need to encourage folks with money. Sure. To, to part with some of their risk capital and allocate that towards angel investments or VCs to ultimately kind of fuel innovation in the city because there's so much latent opportunity I sense in this city, but we need to do more of, of having, you know, encouraging both sides of the equation, both entrepreneurs to take the risk and also ri people to part with risk capital to fuel those entrepreneurs. Sure. So just out of curiosity, because I, I'm not like an angel investor at all, but is there like a percentage that you call risk capital or how do you decide how much money you're really going to put in that category or is it really just personal preference? I think it's personal preference, okay. right? I mean, you look at anyone who allocates sort of wealth allocation models, they always say that you should take five or 10% okay. and put it into riskier assets that have higher potential return, but are inherently much more risky, right? Gotcha. You don't want to have all of your money in like certificates of deposit that are yielding like 2%. 
You want to have some allocation in bonds, some in stocks, gotcha. and some in riskier assets. Some people buy gold. Gotcha. Some some people buy you know natural resources. But but you know I think we should be encouraging people to put some small amount of their wealth, which can amass a lot sure. if, if you've got really wealthy folks, into sort of risk capital investing in entrepreneurs. Because the entrepreneurs are the folks that are going to fuel growth in this country, sure. are, are going to provide incremental employment for for U.S. citizens, sure. and you know let, let's try to prime the pump if we can. And it would be great, you know, five, 10 years hence to look back and see re a real healthy driver of growth in Atlanta coming sure. from startups. No, I, I think it, and I think it's already on its way in Atlanta. Like there's tons of stuff. And obviously I haven't known the market that long in Atlanta, but just from what people have told me in the last like three years, the it's just almost exploded, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's getting so much better all the time. And um, I was actually just in Florida at a conference and a lot of people that made money in kind of the Northeast are like, I'm out of the cold, I'm done, I'm moving down South. Mm -hmm. And so you started, I started to see a lot of people move to kind of Atlanta or Florida even because they just, don't want winter anymore, yep. right? And I don't blame them, like, but, so I think a lot more people are starting to come here and then they're also noticing there's talent here. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, well, I will start investing that money. And, and it sounds like you're just trying to help promote that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't choose to move to Atlanta. I was sure. dragged here by my job, but Atlanta's got this great sort of confluence of drivers, including, like you said, well, the weather's great. We, we rarely, if ever, get snow. Sure. You've got the largest airport in the world, so you can fly, you, I didn't yes, know that. You can fly just about anywhere direct if you're flying for business. Gotcha. Um, you've got, you know, the concentration of like Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 companies is as good as any city. Really? You've got folks oh. like Delta and UP Sure. and Home Depot and Georgia Pacific all here in the city. Um, and you've got um, you know, a, a lot of affluence. Um, and I, I think that there's a lot of... And then you've got great schools here that are generating um, um, engineers, software engineers. Sure. So, and, and I would say that the, maybe the most important thing is the cost of living in Atlanta. The day-to-day -day cost, you know, housing, et cetera, is, is for the size of the city, I would challenge anyone to show me a city of six million folks where you can live as cheaply day-to-day. -day. So when you look at all those factors, sure. yes, people should be spending more time down here. And I think this is why the real estate market here has performed so well over time. Sure. Atlanta will become bigger, right? Gotcha. We'll, we'll get more folks coming in, which is going to be great. The dynamic's great. So yes, I think it's it's poised for greatness, this city. And I think, you know, one of the key drivers will be sort of like startups and early stage companies. Sure. And, and you bring up an interesting point because there's kind of been a shift in the industry a little bit where people are, even that have moved to the Valley, are moving back out of the valley mm -hmm. and you know Atlanta is becoming one of those places where people are moving back to or just even to and maybe they've never lived here before right and there's a handful of other cities around the nation and it, it's interesting because some people are starting to say what you just mentioned like well I don't really want to spend 90% of my paycheck on where I stay every night right, right? yep and uh, and they can't enjoy the city that they're living in right like I've had some friends that have moved to San Francisco, for example, and it's like, oh, it must be awesome. You must be doing all this cool networking and going to all these places. And they're like, I work too much and, I, and or I can't afford it. Right. And I was like, oh, so you're working like 12, 14 hours a day. The, the last thing you want to do is come home and coach some more or go to a networking event or 
right? They're right. just burnt out, yep. right? And yep. so I think there's these other cities that are becoming these like tech hubs that you know are supported by the local universities, places like Tech Village where we are now, and you know I think it's it's awesome, and I'm trying to promote that, especially since the radio show airs in Atlanta, trying to promote the local startup scene here because. I think it's super important, right? Yep. To get involved in it. And obviously you're involved, you're doing a startup, you're p being part of these angel groups, you're at Tech Village. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious though, how, what advice would you give to people that are, were you a number of years ago that are kind of at a corporate job thinking about what you did and moved on and yep. kind of started your own thing? What advice would you give to them? So I encourage people, as odd as it sounds, just keeping a notebook with them. And that can be like a physical notebook okay. or it can be an Excel spreadsheet or what have you. Gotcha. Uh, but constantly, um, you know, monitor your life for big pain points. And that can okay. be within your, your area of expertise. It can be, you know... Uh, traffic. It could be things you hate about brushing your teeth in the morning, right? Interesting. But always okay. capture these pain points and try to figure out, um, is there a solution out there that I can uniquely provide? And over time, you want to fill up reams and reams of pages, okay. right, with ideas and then constantly reprioritize those things. And at all times, you should be um, contrasting your current lot in life Okay. Your happiness, your success, whatever you want to call it, with you know the opportunity to go out and um, um, apply yourself on one of these ventures, solving one of these needs. And if you can find a, a need that resonates with you enough that you're entirely passionate about it, you feel that you've got the skill set to execute against it, sure. and it's it's far more interesting than what you're doing day to day. I think that's when you have to uh, seriously contemplate a move. Okay. And until that time, I would encourage people stay stay in the safety of the corporate world. Sure. Continue to get that regular paycheck in the four hundred one k. Provide for your family, etc. Gotcha. But um, you should always be testing yourself with what might I do if I leave. And frankly, in some ways, it's a great insurance policy because um, you know with, with corporate downsizing, sure. no one knows when they're at risk of being downsized. Gotcha. And if you've got this quote-unquote notebook with you at all times, you always have a fallback plan. Sure, and I guess, like you mentioned earlier, worst-case scenario, you go back to the corporate world. M most people, hopefully you've built over time a marketable skill. Now, you may not be able to come back at exactly the same salaries when you were let go, but sure. I mean, hopefully you've got enough of a marketable skill and you keep that skill honed so someone will hire you at some point. Sure, I, I think that's really good advice. Is there anything else that you kind of... Tell people or like, I love the notebook thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think just, you know, strategic networking. I, okay. I, I, I get fatigued, as you just said, with networking for the sake of networking. Got you. You know, I get far too many people inbound that want to connect with me on LinkedIn and I can't figure out exactly why. Okay. I think that they're just adding to their LinkedIn sure, in friend count. That, yeah. um, but I mean, if, if there are certain areas in which you feel you have a deficit or just intrigue you, right? Go out there and make the incremental effort to go find people who are thought leaders in that space and find a way to connect with them. What do you have in common? What can you do for them so you can actually learn something from them? But I think that, you know, aligned with this growing reprioritized list that you're keeping, sure. if there are things on there where you feel, I don't really have the competency to leave the corporate world and go execute against, then go find the people that can help you get there. Sure. And I guess kind of to your point earlier, if you're in this corporate world, maybe you're not the one actually building it, 
maybe you can fund that idea or put together a group of friends or colleagues or I don't know, find other investors to invest in basically your idea, but you're not building it. You can get somebody else maybe to be CEO or you know do the design and the development and at least maybe build a prototype to test the idea before you even kind of maybe decide to full on leave. Yeah, so I mean, you got a good example. We're sitting in this building now with, with a thousand quote unquote members, sure. um, 350 companies. Sure. Well, you can be sure that half of those members are single um, um, employees of an LLC they've started who are sitting here, might have a day job, sure. and are thinking through how might they go execute something, get enough momentum and traction that it justifies them leaving. So if you have extra bandwidth in your life in the evening or on weekends, sure. I encourage people to explore. And the beautiful thing is you read books like The Lean Startup, yep. and you can figure out that it costs you almost nothing to sure. get out there in the market, validate whether the thought you have, the idea you have, actually could get traction. Sure. And if, if you know you get overwhelming response when you set up a landing page and drive some traffic to it, suddenly like now you have validation. Sure. All of that work should be done before you ever even think about leaving a corporate job. But you should always be running these little experiments in your life. If you have a hypothesized idea, get it there and test it and, sure. and do it within the safety of your corporate cocoon. Sure. And, and realistically, it's not like you're putting your job at risk by doing this. Like, does corporate, even America, really care if you're testing these little business ideas or, or doing things? No, like I mean, the main thing? thing is, you know, it better not conflict with what you do sure, day to day, right? right? Yeah. There's intellectual property issues and such, right. right? But for the most part, no. I mean, if I ever had, I mean, I would hope my employee on their weekend, when I was in the corporate world, sure, okay. my, my employees in the evenings or on the weekends had a hobby that they were passionate about. And if sure. that's to get out and test whether they could go start a business, more power to them. I mean, I love it passionate employees sure. that have you know um, are trying to sort of self-actualize and find sort of like what their their objectives are in life sure and I, I think you bring up kind of an interesting point because I think even if they're testing these business ideas and maybe they don't even ever leave if they have these little hobbies or passion projects they might learn a lot of stuff that they can apply to their day-to-day -day job just through like a failure or just kind of business experience or just a handful of things that I think could really go back into their day job. Do you, do you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, well, I would hope so. I would hope so. You know, I think one of the best things an employee can do in the corporate world is go volunteer. Okay. And, and not why, just go volunteer and go, don't go, I mean, don't go and build a house on the weekend. You can do that gotcha. as well. Sure. But, but, you know, volunteer to get experience that you're not getting in the corporate world. Like, for example, okay. if, if I'm a solo contributor in my cubicle, gotcha. go out there in a leadership position and join a board of a nonprofit it because now suddenly you have sort of authority that you don't have at work and you. you have to lead people and and build consensus for decision making etc you bring that kind of experience back and suddenly it's like wow now this person that I wouldn't have entrusted with employees I see that they're building muscle around leadership and you. consensus building that they can then apply to the corporate world and they're more likely to get promoted as a result I've also yeah, I, I was actually just at Rainmaker the other day and a guy made a really interesting point on a panel. He said, it's really hard, especially for startups, to promote within if they don't have somebody to promote into the spot that you're leaving. And so you should be kind of doing the job before you get promoted to the job. Hence, if you're learning the skills that you need outside of the job. And then if you're training the guy below you to fill that job, then you're more likely to get promoted. And it sounds like 
you're in alignment with that. And, yep. and it makes a lot of sense. And it kind of got me thinking about that quite a bit. And it was just, I don't know. I don't know why I mentioned that, but it just, what you said just kind of resonated with me again. Yeah, it makes, a, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you can get pigeonholed if you don't have anyone to be your successor. And you should always be grasping for, you know, a little bit of the responsibility just beyond your reach. So people sure. know that you're ambitious because if you're ambitious, you're more likely to get promoted. Sure. Couldn't agree more. Sure. But Steve, we're out of time. So maybe let's close the show with promoting where people can uh, find you online. Sure. And um, yeah. And anything personally you want to promote like Twitter or Facebook or whatever. You no, want. that's great. So, I mean, I, I would say sort of like um, a couple of things. One, one is you, you, you can check us out at automotive.ventures, not, okay. not a .com extension, but a .ventures extension. Okay. would love for you to check us out there. Um, but probably more important, you know, if, if the, the, this message is resonating with folks that are in the corporate world, right, is, you know, test yourself keep this list of solutions to big problems that you see day to day, and then try to you know, get closer to a point where you might actually leave the corporate world. I can tell you that nothing is as rewarding as working for yourself, not having a boss, Sure. And, you know, every morning you wake up and if you don't make forward progress, it's your fault. So you are no longer in the comfort and protection of the corporate world. But I can tell you the highs are higher than you would ever experience in the corporate world. The lows are lower, sure. right? When you have to make payroll and fire people. Sure. But the highs are higher. And I think everyone, if they haven't, should, all, should have an opportunity to see how good they are by testing themselves, by trying to build their own company. That's awesome, man. Great, great advice. I really appreciate you being on the show. I look forward to keeping in touch with you and seeing kind of where you go in the future. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. And keep building the future.